Right eye dominant. 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 This is the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I am your host, Nick Toro Jr. And today's episode is being released in conjunction with Pride Month. And I'll be focusing on the life and the work of Jim Bidgood. Jim Bidgood was an American filmmaker, photographer, visual artist, set designer, and he created this body of work that was highly stylized homoerotic photography. So to start off, here's some biographical information on Jim Bidgood. So Jim Bidgood for a long time created in relative obscurity. He had moved to New York City in the 1950s. And as an out gay man, he worked in multiple disciplines of creativity, always having his homosexuality be a component of his expression. One of the first jobs that Jim had when he arrived in New York was being a drag performer. And it's through these performances that he became interested in photography and film. And what he started to do was he started creating these fantasy tableaus that he would build these sets inside of his very small apartment in New York City. And he would construct every aspect of this environment that he would shoot in and then he would bring in handsome young men and photograph them and for a long time this work was not really known about jim parlayed this interest in still photography and creating these environments into motion picture where he created a film which was called pink narcissus Jim had complete control over the set design, the directing, the shooting of the film. But when he got into editing, he was frustrated with the direction that uh, the film was going, and he stepped away from the project and removed his name from the film completely. So when Pink Narcissus was released, nobody knew who actually created it. And in the cult film circuits of the early 1970s, it was a great mystery who directed this film. It wasn't until the late 90s when some intrepid fans of the film sought out who was actually responsible for it when it was discovered that Jim Bidgood had directed this film. And not only that, he was still alive and living in New York City. The interest in the film and having his name attached to it then introduced the publisher, Toshin, to the body of Jim's still photography work. And then Toshin released a beautiful monograph of Jim's photographs. It was around this time where I met Jim Bidgood. I was working in New York City in the year 2000, and my job was to scan and retouch fine art photographs for exhibition. And one of the first big projects I worked on was a handful of really neglected transparencies uh, from the bottom of Jim Bidgood's closet. And over the weeks and months that followed, it was my responsibility to bring these photos back to life. And the end result was a major exhibit for Jim in New York City. 
Finally, after years of obscurity, Jim was in the spotlight. He maybe wasn't necessarily prepared for the attention that he was receiving. And so, thankfully, he met a few people who really were involved with helping him navigate this newfound notoriety and also helped him towards the end of his life. Jim passed away in January due to COVID. He was 88 years old. And I found out about it because a friend had passed on a link to me for a GoFundMe to handle Jim's burial and memorial. And that was being run by a man named Kelly McCaig. Kelly was a very good friend of Jim in his later years. And he also became the executor of his estate. So I reached out to Kelly and thought maybe it would be a really nice tribute to Jim Bidgood to have him on the show and talk about the life and the work of a really interesting, extraordinary, creative person. So that's what this episode focuses on. I'll get to the interview with Kelly in just a moment. I do want to let you know that we discuss specific photographs in the conversation, and I will have links to those in the show notes. And before we jump into those specific conversations, I'll just give you a heads up to open up those images. It'll really help you... Uh, follow along the conversation. I also want to say that um, through all of this, it's been really enlightening to me to revisit the work and the life of Jim Bidgood. He really was dedicated to his craft. Um, some might say in a, in a almost like a control freak sort of way. But those of us who toil away on our own work know that no one's going to care about it more than you do. And I think that Jim and his life and his work is a testament to that uh, that kind of approach. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Kelly McCaig, focusing on the life and artwork of Jim Bidgood. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly McCaig. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time out uh, to talk to me about uh, the life and the work of Jim Bidgood. Hi, thanks for having me. Great. So, um, so tell us just briefly, how did you first meet Jim or how did you connect with him? Sure. I, uh, I met Jim in the fall of 1999, right as his monograph was being published by Toshin Books. Um, I had seen Pink Narcissus in the 90s at the underground or the, you know, one of the gay and lesbian film festivals in New York City as sort of one of those underground classics along with Kenneth Anger movies and Jack Smith and Andy Warhol. And, um, and it was one of those pieces of film that I just, I recognized as really special. Um, a friend of mine uh, was helping Jim out on a benefit for the nonprofit called God's Love We Deliver. And Jim was creating these sets that were these sort of environments in the rooms of the restaurant bar where the party was being held. And uh, they were sort of evocations of images that were captured in the book. Um, so that was around 99 when the book came out and he was uh, sort of riding high on a level of publicity. He had received at that point, I think, one gallery show up in Provincetown. And he was planning with uh, Paul Morris to exhibit his photographs in uh, Chelsea. Um, and, uh, and we just became friends. I would, you know, he was sort of what I considered as a gay elder and somebody that uh, had lived a life that 
just, you know, he was born in 1933. Mm -hmm. uh, he moved to New York at 19, uh, 1952. Um, he became a drag queen, um, not, be, not out of any sort of deep-seated uh, issue or, you know, gender dysphoria or anything like that. It was a job. And he was cute and skinny and <laughs> didn't mind putting on a dress. And uh, so he worked in this pre-Stonewall mafia-owned drag bar called the 82 Club. And uh, see, so he'd, he'd had this amazing life. Uh, when I met him, he was 60-something, 60 66, 67. And, uh, but I could see the, you know, I'd been around enough in New York at that time. I'd been in the city almost 10 years. And I'd had friends who had encountered fame and it's fleeting and the media is always looking for the next thing. And Jim had never really experienced success. His movie Pink Narcissus had been taken away from him in post-production and he took his name off of it. Um, he never received any money or any royalties or any recognition. So this book was the first time in 30 some odd years that he had been acknowledged and while it was great, I could see that it was fleeting. Mm. And over the next couple years, you know, his manager left because there, there wasn't another book that was going to be coming out. And um, the gallery did the show and they had seen all the photographs and there was no other work that he had made. And so he needed help. And I sort of stepped in as in around 2002, 2003 as his manager slash agent and just tried to keep him going. And mm -hmm. we applied for some grants. We got some emergency funds. The Robert Rauschenberg Foundation sort of has a no questions asked grant for $600 for struggling artists, which is incredible. They And they were the first people to really give Jim money. And it did a lot for him in terms of acknowledging his work we subsequently were able to get a creative capital grant. The Creative Capital Foundation is another uh, amazing institution. And the folks there really believed in Jim and his ability to make art again. So around 2005, I think is when we got the grant, he started uh, reconceiving new work, photographs that he wanted to take. And Pink Narcissus was a movie that was built out of everything was created by him. So the sets were built by him. The costumes were built by him. The makeup was done by him. The camera was operated by him. The lights hmm. were done by him. There was no sound recorded. In editing, it was, there was an editor brought in um, who was actually, I just found out, the son of the owner of Janus Films, hmm. who worked for the company Surepix that was going to distribute it. So he did everything, and that's what he wanted to do with these new photographs. That's, a, that's amazing. Let me jump in on that. First of all, um, are you are you an artist? Are you a? I mean, was there any art, artistic creative connection between you and Jim, or was it just? I, I, uh, I, I am not an artist. I call myself sort of an artistic enabler. I mm -hmm. have always helped my friends get their projects made. I worked in film production right out of college as an assistant director. Well, first I was a PA because everyone's a PA. Of course. Uh, I sort of worked my way up to being an assistant director and just friends would come to me that I met on movies and they would say, I've got this project. I want to do this thing. And I would help them. And it was as disparate as rock musicians or 
photographers, filmmakers, playwrights, performance artists, dance artists. And I would take the skills that I would learn in one discipline and sort of apply them to the other in terms of best practices. Mm. Kudos to you for doing that, because I know just in the creative world, it's people like you are very important. And I think just just to see how you've helped Jim once you, you, you know, once you guys connected, but also I know you've done a lot of work, um, you know, as, as, as he was sick and then passed away and now dealing with his estate. Um, I think a lot of artists or let's just use that term broadly, don't realize how important that kind of support and, and infrastructure really for, to support the, the creativity uh, is so valuable. So you mentioned something as you recognize Jim as a gay elder, probably as the sort of the, the main draw um, uh, at first, I guess is the best was way to part of it. it. Definitely. I mean, he was also an amazing storyteller. Uh, he was incredibly funny. Mm-hmm. He was wickedly funny. Yes, um, I know firsthand. <laughs> yes. And he was charming and yeah. And he was a, 60 something guy living in his apartment, living his life. And yeah. this sort of, this book sort of fell in his lap and he, he wasn't really prepared for how to deal with that. I mean, when you become famous at 60 something after living in obscurity for 30 plus years, you can be caught off guard. Do you know what led to Toshin uh, publishing the book? Do you know like what, how, how they ended up with the work or was it? Yeah. So in the mid nineties, around 94, 95, um, an author named Bruce Benderson heard through the grapevine that the director of Pink Narcissus was around and that he rented a lot of gay porn at this video store on Greenwich Avenue in the West Village. And I think Bruce might've lived over there and he found Jim And he approached him and said, look, um, do you have anything from the Pink Narcissus era? And Jim said, no, I've I've destroyed everything or I threw it away or nothing, nothing made it. And Bruce said, well, because like if you had photographs, we could make a book and you could get a lot of money. You know, a lot of money wasn't a lot of money, but it was it was like Mm $50,000, which was more than Jim at that time had taken early Social Security. So he was living on six, seven hundred a month from the city, and that just changed his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was ninety five, and then the book ultimately came out in ninety nine. So it was like a three plus year process to get the photo. Fo- the photographs were literally in a shoebox, not a shoebox, but like in in bins in his in the back of his closet in his tiny one bedroom apartment, which was a fourth floor walk up in the West village on 14th street. Yeah. What I I find really amazing about that is there's a a romantic sort of idea about that kind of, you know, like unknown artist or, but the reality of his life was very different and, and, and challenging in many ways. So I could see how the, 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 the Toshin book and that notoriety that came along with it. And as you said, somebody, later in life who'd been just living this this sort of quiet life under the radar can you just maybe describe like how that affected him once he started getting the attention that that he hadn't had for all of those years well he always had 
a belief in himself. And he, as and he was a complete autodidact. I mean, he had, after coming to New York as a drag queen, he went to Parsons and studied fashion. But in terms of his photography he, and his filmmaking, he was completely self-taught. So for him to get the prey and to not go to art school, to not exhibit, to not do any of that. Um, so for him to get the reception that he did get, both technically and artistically for the work, I think validated a lot of his own feelings. He, he always told himself that the stuff was really great and people would call him a genius and people would say that he was brilliant and, and he suffered from depression and he suffered from poverty and, and he would always complain. Uh, he said, people, you know, he said, people could see how I live, but then I read on the internet what they say about me and he couldn't reconcile those two thoughts. Um, so he did bask in the attention um, because it was, I think, rightfully deserved. Some of his uh, tricks and how he built things, they were incredible. And, and so as far as you mentioned that at a certain point after you had gotten close with him, he did start, did he do new work? Did he, or he was just planning it or did he actually he, produce? He, he, he had no attention span. And I think you, you saw that in Narcissus. I mean, he started photographing. Um, he found an outlet for the photographs in physique magazines. He decided he needed to put something. Uh, he, he wanted to make uh, moving images. Um, so then he took the sets from the still photography and worked those into some sort of quasi-narrative but he was, he never really sat still. So he came up with a suite of ideas for photographs for creative capital, but he would get distracted. Mm -hmm. um, he did take two photographs. Um, one was, well, more than two, but two, we have really two sets of photographs. There was one that he did a, just a very small photo shoot for Out Magazine um, that was very reminiscent of his 60s physique work. He built the set, he um, painted the backdrop, he painted the model's body to create contour and definition. I mean, the model had a, you know, a body that would stop a truck. Um, <laughs> and he still went in with a pencil and highlighted each abdominal muscle and each, you know, shadow of the delt to make it look that much more sultry. Mm. Um, and... Around 2007 or 2008, we were uh, put in touch with the shoe designer, Christian Louboutin, and Christian commissioned him to make a photograph of a shoe. And so Jim built this elaborate set. And what was supposed to take two months took six, <laughs> just typical Jim. So we made, he made two images ultimately. Okay. So thinking about his, the filmmaking or his, those photographs where he, literally did everything and he constructed the sets and in i i have to tell you i I've, I've shared his work with fellow photographers and then i tell the story basically of of how he did those photos mm -hmm. and where he did those and everyone's just astounded by that and so do you think that and maybe because he was sort of approached later after he got some some time you know some notoriety um he still felt like he had to do everything himself that 
that was just sort of ingrained in his did that was for him the artistic practice even fashion which is outsourced you know couture is thousands of hours of little old ladies beating dresses mm-hmm. he would do all that himself he didn't understand the notion of of, of outsourcing because he felt like he could do it better than anyone right wow it's amazing. The, the fact that he came to New York at the age he did, at the time he did, um, like you mentioned earlier, pre-Stonewall, to think about not only that he was doing everything himself, but um, in an environment or atmosphere where it's very different from today. So did he talk about that or do you have thoughts about it? He did. He he. Um, he missed the first gay pride. He was not a political guy. And he tells a story of schlepping to work one more, one Saturday or Sunday morning. And he came across the first gay pride parade and he didn't know what was going on. Um, and he was never in the closet. I mean, he was a little swishy queenie, like he, he, you know, he told everyone Mm -hmm. and he didn't care what you thought. And he, uh, that was liberating um, for him and, and for me hearing about that, you know, 30 years later. Um, but he, uh, so he was never in the closet because there was never a closet for him to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, he was always out and, you know, before there was, a, before there was an out. So I just want to jump in uh, and pause the interview for a moment This is where we start talking about specific photos by Jim Bidgood. And if you go to the show notes, there is a list of links uh, in chronological order that match the discussion. So you can maybe jump over there and click on those links now. And then we'll get right back into the interview. Yeah. So the first set of photographs he made started in 1963 and he picked up a camera because one of the, there were models in the, or there were men in the drag shows with him. um, And we would call them now sort of boylesque beauties. And they were the lithe muscled men who would sort of escort the Queens uh, wearing a little more than a G string just to sort of hyper, like to have a sort of a hyper-masculine character next to this artificially created female one. I have to, um, I have to jump in because I'm a huge fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't know if you've watched the show. I, I'm a bad gay. <laughs> and I'm a good straight person. <laughs> I'm a bad gay. Yeah, and this God is- God bless a, them. They deserve every dollar that they're making from Well, us. this isn't just a, well, th- to think about that Jim was doing it back in the 50s, right? Yeah. Um, it, it just is, again, an indication of how dramatically uh, things have changed in our society. But the reason why I'm mentioning it is because there's this cadre of, of, of male dancers that kind of like appear on the show as like the support on stage. And they're all, they're all very scantily clad in thongs and they're called the pit crew. Right. And so I, what I you're describing, yeah. Right. So and what you're it's, what it's, you're it's, describing sounds just like the pit crew. It's an age-old trope. It okay. goes back to vaudeville. Mm. Anyway, so, continue. Sorry. Uh, so there was one model um, 
who worked at the 82 club with him, one boy. So he started building these sets in his apartment. He lived in a railroad on on 8th Avenue between 46th and 47th. It has subsequently been torn down and they put in a staples. Um, but in, so as a railroad, you would have the living room connected directly to the kitchen, connected directly to the front room with like a little half bath off to the side of one of those rooms. Uh, and so it was a shotgun essentially. So he would set up in the kitchen, the camera pointing into the living room, and then he would build these sets in the living room that would sort of create this, these underwater uh, environments. And uh, one of these photographs uh, had, is just incredible because you look at it and you're like, how did he do that? And then you realize if you turn it 90 degrees to the right, you realize that the entire set is the whole perspective is shifted hmm. and the model is just standing back in a back bend. And of course he has no clothes on except for a pearl thong, a pearl strong thong with glitter in his hair and body paint and oil. And there's chiffon and sequins and fabric everywhere. But it was these sorts of tricks of the eye that let him capture what, you thought was somebody really swimming or somebody really underwater. Mm. Um, it's in, in some ways it's so simple and it's so genius at the same time. I'm looking at this photo and just to think that I'm looking at it, how it, how he presented it. It totally looks like uh, the, 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 the figure is swimming and through this gauzy watery environment, and then just to kind of like turn it on its side and figure that out, it doesn't spoil it for me at all. It actually makes it even no, it enhances more it. wonderful. Yeah, uh, the great. model the model was named Jay Garvin, who worked at the eighty two club. Jay Garvin. Jay Garvin. Okay, and he was uh, eye candy. Let me see. There's another one that I have another another underwater shot. Um. Mm. This is you can see Jay's face. I mean, he's yeah. a beautiful man. Yeah, and I remember working. Like I remember working on this particular photo too. So again, you look at this and you're like, how, I mean, in an, in 1963, how do you do this without Photoshop? Um, so he's. It looks like he's swimming. There's a kick in the glitter in his hair. Um, he's got the same pearl strung g-string. Um, and it looks like he's floating. And what he did was he took a one-legged stool and covered it in fabric mm. and had the model rest his stomach on it and arch his back and put his hand up. Um, and then as he was extending, Jim would snap the photograph and then he would release and his feet would hit the ground. <laughs> so, but that, you know, it really looks like he's swimming. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful image, and as I mentioned before, I this was one of the images that when I worked on uh, Jim's transparencies, this one. And the the funny thing is, was a couple of interesting points. First of all, you said 1963, mm -hmm. right? And how this whole look of um, the colors and the gauziness and the psychedelia that sort of a handful of years later became sort of much more pop culturally significant, yet he was already playing in that style. And I know he was in New York, so those 
those waves ripple out from from you know New York at, or certainly at that time. But it was interesting to see sort of that aesthetic uh, that early on. Yeah, well, I think that I mean the only outlet for his photography was in physique magazines, which mm. were coded for gay men who wanted to look at attractive other men who could be wrestling or, you know, and they would tell these weird narratives and Jim always, and there were always sort of like men in posing straps leaning against ionic columns and, or wrestlers or bikers or, you know, these weirdly sort of incongruous scenarios. Uh, and Jim really believed in the inherent beauty of men mm-hmm. and really wanted to create essentially a male version of the Varga girl, you know, he really, he loved Varga. Um, but so when you look at the physique magazines that he was in, you, it was like posing strap, posing strap, column, wrestlers, bikers, boxers, and then these like chiffon dreams. <laughs> right. So, which is amazing how they must have stood out. It was know. a real subversion of everything especially within a gay milieu. Mm-hmm. And he subverted it even more because the guy that was the publisher, Joe Weider, um, apparently, I don't know if I could get in trouble saying this, but was... Well, I, anything that, I mean, we can edit Well, uh, he was a racist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I might leave that in. <laughs> yeah. Joe, Joe Weider was, um, was a racist. And in, there were black men in some of these physique magazines, but G, but Weider was explicit saying no black man would ever be on the cover of his magazine. So what does Jim do? But he creates a scenario where he puts a black man covered in glitter and you can't <laughs> tell. Was it ever, or was this work or anything that Jim worked on, was it ever, was there pushback that it was pornographic or, or too explicit or, because I know I'm looking at it and again, as a straight man, but as an artist, as a photographer, they're beautiful. They're they're They create their own world. There's an innocence to these photos. I'm just wondering, were they ever perceived uh, as, as dangerous or ris- too risque? I don't know if, Dangerous is the right word. I know that um, the film, when it was released in 71, um, it fortunately came after things like I Am Curious Yellow and um, Kenneth Anger movies, which had sort of pushed the, and Jack Smith, Jack Smith was sued for Flaming Creatures. So there had already been precedents. It certainly wasn't uh, the first of art films to show male nudity. Warhol had that in a couple of his, uh, in the kiss there were, you would see men kissing and, um, and my favorite was in blowjob where you never knew if, uh, whoever was giving the blowjob was a man or a woman. Right. (laughs) Um, so no, I wouldn't say risque or transgressive, but, um, certainly out there. Mm Mm-hmm. I know that you've referenced some of the people who've said they've been influenced, more contemporary artists, performers who've been influenced by this work. Can you talk a little, just a little bit about, about that? You know, historically, the biggest influence of Jim in terms of his legacy would be the French artists Pierre and Gilles. Um, and they were very public in their 
um, homage. They saw the film in the mid seventies in Paris and really created an entire vernacular around it. Um, uh, you can look at artists like David LaChapelle who never really copped to Jim's influence, but I think people understand that it was there in terms of, again, the Baroque, the decadence, the, the, um, overstuffed scenes. Artists like, like John Waters loves Pink Narcissus and has, I've never met the man, but he has been so kind in his sharing of, he, he talks about it as one of his favorite films. And so anytime he gets asked, uh, to list his, uh, one of those sort of foundational documents for him, Narcissus is always up on the list. This pop singer named Charlie XCX, who I think is British, um, but young. I mean, she's maybe 30, just mm-hmm. talks about her love of um, the work. And that's what I find fascinating is, the, is it's not just gay men um, that love it. I mean, John Waters tells a story of taking straight friends to see Pink Narcissus and how they loved it just as a, as a piece of filmmaking. So yeah, like that's been, that, that's been really gratifying to see that it's, it's, well, it's been sort of pigeonholed as niche stuff. People like you, people like these other artists of note, and just anecdotally, I get from friends who love the work as well. So I just want to jump in here again and let you all know that now if you jump to the show notes and click on the uh, second link that I've shared, you will see the photograph that we're about to discuss. And uh, this one is uh, one of Jim Bidgood's muses, uh, a young man named Bobby Kendall. So this is Bobby Kendall, who has lips pre-silicone. Um, those were his natural, that was, those were his lips and that was his face. And he was a, and he was probably 17. I actually have the model release for him to be photographed by Jim. He was 16 and the model release is signed by his father. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah. I love it. Um, But this photograph, Jim, uh, you know, again, talking about the technical, uh, mastery for somebody who didn't study photography. He um, literally just put a piece of black tape over the camera lens and masked the bottom half, exposed it, and then turned the camera upside down and uh, had the model move and did it again. And he got this image, which is really, again, this is before Photoshop. This is before mm-hmm. any type of digital medium that could alter images and people look at it and they don't know how he did it. He, I mean, that's, and still 60 years after the fact, that's what I love is that people are just still sort of baffled by the work. So at this point of the conversation, uh, I asked Kelly if we could talk a little bit about not how Jim died or specifically, you know, the days leading up to his death. But certainly um, how I heard about his passing was that there was a GoFundMe account that was set up 
And I asked Kelly just to talk a little bit about reconciling Jim Bidgood's estate and what comes next as far as a tribute to the artist and the man. He was a hoarder um, and his rent controlled uh, apartment was filthy. Um, and the irony is that a man who could create such beautiful images would live, you know, in such squalor. Um, I was instrumental in, and I'm very proud of this, that I was able to sort of support him uh, for so long. But I was, you know, I was able to get him on Medicaid. I got him food stamps. He, w- I was the one he would call at three in the morning when he needed to go to the emergency room, which became his primary care doctor. Uh, he didn't handle um, interruptions to his routines. So when the barbershop that was in the basement of his building closed, he stopped getting haircuts until I bought him clippers and we would cut his hair in his house just because he couldn't understand um, why the barber closed. Why did they have to leave? Um, So we talked about his estate um, and part of the, I guess part of the package deal for me was that he made me the beneficiary of everything. Um, he was estranged from his brother, who was his only surviving relative, and he was paranoid of cremation. So he uh, wrote in the will, um, it says, uh, Kelly McCagg will dispose of my uncremated remains, <laughs> um, which meant I had to bury him. And I brought him up to Hudson, so selfishly, I could be near him, but also because it's not like I could get him into, you know, the cemetery where Basquiat was buried or, you know, Hollywood forever or whatever that, you know, not mm-hmm. that he has a connection to LA, but like, what am I going to do? Put him in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Right. Um, so I just decided to bring him up here and um, I got him buried and there was no ceremony, but I was, I was there. I tried to do schedule a memorial for May. I mean, he died January 31st, and I sort of was in shock for a couple of weeks, and I really didn't really start thinking of the memorial till almost the first week of March. And by the time I reached out to people, um, I looked at uh, Judson Church and St. Mark's on the Bowery and a couple other places, and they all wrote back and they're like, yeah, between COVID funerals and weddings, that didn't happen. We just have no availability. I spoke with um, Jim's gallerist, uh, a guy named Brian Clamp, who's represented Jim for 18 years um, at Clamp Art Gallery. And uh, he thought we could have a show of sort of unseen images in the fall. And I just heard from St. Mark's on the Bowery that they have some availability the second or third week in September. So it's going to be a little later, but I don't okay. want to do it over the summer because God forbid it interferes with people going to fire Island or <laughs> not even that, but like, yeah. you know, people have lives and yeah, sure. And I wouldn't want people to miss it. So it's going to, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be between two and 300 people and the estate we're emptying his apartment right now. Um, I've got to get everything up to Hudson to a climate controlled storage space that I have reserved I'm hopefully going to do that by the end of uh, May. Um, we've been cleaning and boxing and 
throwing things away. And so, yeah, so uh, the GoFundMe was incredibly successful. We, I was shocked. We, we received coverage in the guardian. Um, people were great about using social media and broadcasting it. We raised the $20,000 goal in three days. Um, and in that description, I said that I was going to put $2,500 for um, the reception. And friends of mine were like, no, 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 no. You've got a plan like 40 bucks ahead. And I was like, oh, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean that. And so anyway, uh, we now have more money for a reception. I've got money to sort of keep the archive going until we figure out where it's going to go, which could take years, frankly. Um, you know, just getting him in the ground was $12,000. Mm. Um, that's no, with no headstone. Um, so the headstone is going to be 3000 maybe. Um, I was hoping to find lavender granite, but I don't think they make it. I don't think it's a natural thing. So I have a friend or two who are artists who are going to help me design a headstone and mm. find the right color and shape. And I, I, when I went and toured the, um, the site, I don't know what, the, what it's called. It's not a mason. The quarry place that mm. sells the stone. That, mm -hmm. Yeah, anyway, they had all the little details that you could put and... They had flowers you can in, in etch into the corners of the headstone. And of course they had Narcissus. And I think that's where we're going to go. But they also had pansies. Mm. And I thought, oh, pansies would be perfect for Jim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was such a pansy. <laughs> um, Kelly McCaig, thank you so much for taking your time to join me for this conversation and to talk about the life and the work of Jim Bidgood. Um, just so much appreciated your time today. Thank you. So there you go, folks. My interview with Kelly McCaig regarding the life and the work of photographer, um, gay elder statesman, as Kelly called him. And, uh, personally for me uh, uh, just a an interesting person that I got to meet at an interesting time in my life and someone who in his own way showed me what it means to be dedicated to your craft and to never compromise on your vision so I'll definitely share links to all the photos that Kelly and I discussed I'll also share links that talk a little bit more about Jim his filmmaking, his still photography, his legacy. And um, I think you should check out his work because it's it's really unique and, and quite beautiful. So that's it for the Right Eye Dominant Podcast for this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, please leave me a rating or a review on the platform that you listen to this on. If you could, I would really appreciate that. And uh, look forward to uh, producing the next episode. Hard to believe that we're nearing the 25th episode mark already. But um, I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. So that's it for me, your host, Nick Toro Jr. That's it for this episode of the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. And until next time, stay well. Today's episode has been a production of Right Eye Dominant. Dot A-R-T. 
The music for today's episode has been brought to you by The Conant Project, Yazar, and Spinning Merkaba. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero, 